Welcome to the concluding episode of the Black Dahlia and the Blue Dahlia podcast. I'm your host, Scott Tracy. I assumed learning about Elizabeth Short would lead me to a suspect when I began to research this mystery. My early questions, who was Elizabeth Short? What could she have done to deserve such a cruel, torturous fate? Why is she called the Black Dahlia? She was dumped at a lover's lane. Could this be the action of a jilted ex-lover? These questions are a distraction. No one deserves such a fate. She was nicknamed the Black Dahlia by complete strangers. Norton Avenue wasn't a lover's lane then and isn't one now. Of the four suspects presented in books, none fit the category of a jilted lover. Nor is there any clear indication of any relationship between the prime suspects, Leslie Dillon or George Hodell or the mad butcher of Kingsbury Run with Norton Avenue. This dump site likely has internal meaning to the real killer, but that's speculation and there's no clue. Norton Avenue is an island that doesn't exist in Beth's life, only in her death. Who was Elizabeth Short? Beth was a naive drifter, greedy for attention. Beth is flirtatious with strangers and duplicitous with partners. Beth is not just an overly friendly girl who underestimates the risks of getting into a car with a stranger. Beth is homeless when she puts the payphone back on the cradle and leaves the Biltmore Hotel on foot, walking south alone on Olive Street. She has tried to reach others, but now has no one. None of the soldiers in her memory book or civilians in her address book are coming to help. Elizabeth is emotionally and economically dependent upon strangers. And so studying Beth's life offers no path that names the killer. Elizabeth's last months in California resemble that of a teenage child who has run away to join the circus of big city life. Her actions at times lack adult logic. It makes no sense that she would lie to Anne when she says she's going to go north to Oakland to visit her sister Virginia and instead travel south to San Diego without any set plan. She's very lucky that the French family brings her in in San Diego. But why would Beth choose to spend the Christmas holiday with complete strangers instead of with her sister? Looking for answers about Elizabeth Short and finding very little, I felt as if I had opened the last, smallest Russian nesting doll in the set and found it to be as empty as Raymond Chandler's paper cup. Beth's childhood ambition to be a movie star is not the magnetic north of her movements in California. When the Hollywood melodrama is ignored, the compass of the mystery properly adjusts to the nature of the crime and the criminal signatures and victimology. Beth is the same person in Medford, Massachusetts as she is in Santa Barbara, in Long Beach, and in Los Angeles and San Diego. Hollywood does not change Elizabeth Short. It's Beth's romantic disappointments that sets her in motion, not her dreams of movie fame. Beth never has a job after the death of Matt Gordon and never has a stable living situation after she broke with Fickling. Her teenage male friends in Medford speak of her vulnerability in a way that's evident to us when she is in Hollywood. Quote, 
I think of her as beautiful, but a very private person, with a sadness about her, a void, something missing. Another male friend, quote, I wanted to wash the makeup off her face, wanted her to be her natural self. She never mentioned boyfriends. She was a loner and seemed to be floating, wandering with no direction. The story of Elizabeth Short's life is not a Hollywood story. However, the Black Dahlia myth is as Hollywood as Hedda Hopper. And that fact is clear when one reads the very early words written about Jane Doe number one on January 16th on the front page of the Los Angeles Daily News. It speaks of Dr. Frederick Newbar, who mentions that the girl was a peasant type with heavy thighs. That peasant type comment strikes such a sharp contrast to the movie struck wannabe image that was packaged in the newspapers from that day forward. The fascinating trajectory of this victim from Jane Doe number one to Elizabeth Short to the Black Dahlia is like none other in history. The angel of death for the city of Los Angeles has become a muse for the marketplace. Jane Doe number one of 1947 has morphed into a brand in 2021. There are more commercial Black Dahlia products in the marketplace today than there were suspects in the murder case listed by the district attorney in 1949. 24 suspects. Because one can purchase Black Dahlia perfume, Black Dahlia lacquer for nails, as well as rock music, CDB oils, and bonbons. Elizabeth Short becoming the Black Dahlia elevates this crime to becoming the most important murder of an unimportant person in California history. The three suspects that authors have claimed to have been the killer, Leslie Dillon, George Hodel, and the mad butcher of Kingsbury Run, will all be covered in this podcast. The publication of a pulp detective magazine in October of 1948 changed the case dramatically. That magazine ran a cover story a speculative piece entitled The Black Dahlia Murders, written by George Clark. Note murders is plural. And the illustration on the True Detective magazine cover shows the heads of six young women in various states of distress. Deriver anointed as the, quote, sex expert, end quote, uh, is quoted at length multiple times, including the final two sentences in the article. Dr. DeRiver believes that the type of person capable of conceiving the kind of death that was inflicted upon Elizabeth Short will sooner or later, by his very nature, be impelled to boast of the crime that shocked the nation. End quote. One month after the publication, Dr. DeRiver receives a letter from a Jack Sands in Miami. DeRiver is intrigued to discover that Sands is an aspiring writer who is interested in sexually uh, themed crimes and sadism. DeRiver speaks with Sands over the telephone and inquired if Sands might wish to help the doctor with his research and his investigation. Promoting his usefulness to Deriver, Dylan recalls a friend in San Francisco, another aspiring pulp fiction writer named Connors, and Connors said 
that he knew Elizabeth Short. Deriver offers to hire Sands as a secretary in order to assist with the doctor's work in progress, a book focused on the sexual criminal. Sands agrees. Deriver, believing this man he's not met is the murderer, convinces the chief of police to release monies to fly Sands to Las Vegas. On December 28, 1948, Driver and his driver, LAPD Sergeant J.J. O'Mara, pick up Jack Sands at the Las Vegas airport. Driver explains there are no suitable rooms in Vegas. They drive to a small town halfway between Palm Springs and San Bernardino, and three rooms are arranged at the Briar Gate Lodge in Banning, California. Sergeant O'Mara places a listening device in one of the rooms. The interrogation begins with the friendly demeanor of an employer interviewing a candidate in a hotel room. Jack Sands clarifies that he's used his pen name to write to Deriver. His real name is Leslie Dillon. He's 27 years old and has lived in different cities since he was uh, discharged from the Navy. Unknown to Dylan, Deriver is recording the conversations. Consistent with the Lombroso-inspired curiosity of the anatomy of criminals, Deriver asks Dylan to take off his shirt. Dylan complies. Deriver asks Dylan to lower his pants. Dylan hesitates, then complies. On a simple level, a voyeur is engaging an exhibitionist. However, this voyeur is a misguided, narcissistic poser, and this exhibitionist is a grifter amped on amphetamines. Driver observes that Mr. Dillon's penis is undersized and surmises that Beth must have teased Leslie about his boyhood-sized manhood. Driver imagines that Dillon ties up Elizabeth short, carves the flesh of her face open, watches the body bleed out. Dylan evacerates her tattoo on the thigh and slices her breast like a butcher trimming meat. He cleanly bisects her, then scrubs and brushes the body in order to place the two naked halves where school children ride bicycles because Leslie Dylan has a diminutive penis. In that moment, Dylan thinks he's got a job and Deriver thinks he has a murderer. They are both wrong. Leslie Dylan states he has no direct knowledge of the Black Dahlia, only knowing what he's read in the newspapers and detective magazines and his conversation in San Francisco with Jeff Connors, who claimed to have met Elizabeth Short at a bar in Los Angeles during her last week alive. Deriver suggests a journey to San Francisco, and on January 3rd, they're on the road to meet this man, Connors. Accompanied by Deriver and O'Mara, Dylan searches in vain for Jeff Connors in the city. The next morning, they return south, arriving in Los Angeles on the 7th of January. O'Mara books rooms at the Strand Hotel, west of downtown. The interrogation becomes confrontational as Deriver theorizes Dylan has a split personality, and Connors is Dylan's alter ego. Connors is the one that kills, and so Deriver accuses Dylan of inventing Jeff Connors. 
The doctor's theory of sexual criminals necessitates finding a way to get the Connor's personality to confess. And so Deriver handcuffs Dylan to a radiator and confronts him, but to no avail. On January 10th, Dylan takes a Briargate Lodge postcard and writes a plea for help addressed to Jerry Geisler, the most famous Los Angeles attorney. On the front of the postcard, quote, if found, please mail. The back reads, I'm being held at the Strand Hotel in connection with the Black Dahlia murder by Dr. J. Paul DeRiver, as far as I can tell. I would like legal counsel, Mr. Leslie Dillon. The postcard is not mailed. It's tossed out of the Strand Hotel window with a stamp on it. Astonishingly, the card is found lying in the gutter by a newspaper employee, the aptly named William Chance. And so the Herald Express has the scoop, and the next day Leslie Dillon is revealed to the rest of the world by Police Chief Horrell as the best suspect we have ever had. Driver speaks at the press conference and makes two completely false claims. Quote, Dillon knows more about the Black Dahlia murder than the police and more about abnormal sex psychopathia than most psychiatrists do, end quote. In short order, Jeff Connors is located in Gilroy, arrested and brought to Los Angeles for questioning. Driver's split personality hypothesis is exposed as delusionary. Dylan is released and threatens a lawsuit for his mistreatment. Two days later, Connors is released. The United Press highlights the embarrassing situation, quote, last night, exactly two years after the torture slaying of beautiful jet-haired Elizabeth Short, the latest in a long series of hot suspects, was freed last night, and police admitted they had no other suspects in sight." End quote. Similar to the many Black Dahlia confessors who volunteer to be included in the big story, Dylan and Connors have pretended to be part of something infamous posing to be more important than they really are. Although the police interest in Dylan continues, the game changes when the grand jury launches its own investigation. The primary concern of the 1949 Los Angeles County Grand Jury is the bribes and corruption of the police department. Just as corruption had been the concern in previous grand juries in 1934 and 1938, the 1949 grand jury found evidence of payoffs protecting the Mickey Cohen gambling operations and the Brenda Allen prostitution ring. Brenda Allen ran an escort service through a telephone exchange. The Vice Queen Bee placed advertisements in the Los Angeles Times claiming she could offer over 100 escorts for companionship. It was true. She had 114 pleasure girls who in a typical day brought in $4,500. Sergeant Elmer Jackson, second in command on the LAPD Vice Squad, became the Queen Bee's lover and business partner. For protection from raids and other legal actions, Allen paid Jackson $50 a week for each woman she employed. With 100 working girls, that bribe would amount to $56,000 a week in today's dollars. 
Mickey Cohen's method of bribery was creative. His bookie syndicate had a legitimate front, a savings and loan company called Guarantee Finance, who would lend Los Angeles PD officers significant amounts of money, but never ask for repayment. That's a staggering amount of money available to have police look the other way. And it makes you realize how easy it was to offer enough money for every and any need. Accordingly, Los Angeles citizens had a very negative impression of policing. The headlines of unsolved lone women murders were a constant drumbeat that had citizens wondering why are sex-crazed murderers free to roam the streets. The grand jury was determined to find out if the homicide division was corrupt or competent. The Black Dahlia murder was foremost in everyone's mind given the chief of police had just arrested Leslie Dillon on January 12th of that year, only to release the best suspect we've ever had on the 13th. Interestingly, the rise of crime premise of this grand jury is false. The murder rate had been falling every year in the post-war period. 220 deaths in 1946, 209 in 1947, 162 in 1948. What has gone up was the amount of newspaper column space and photos that would publicize brutal slayings as never before. And the press embraced the public hunger for Black Dahlia-type stories. So it's the square inches of newspaper coverage that leads to a perception that feeds the public outrage the lack of progress. Did the corruption and vice cross over and in any way impact the homicide division? The grand jury concluded that there was no corruption in the homicide investigation of the murder of Elizabeth Short and no examination of any of the lone women victims show any link to gambling or prostitution. The murders of oil heiress Georgette Bauerdorf, homeless Naomi Cook, drunken Evelyn Winters, church-going Dorothy Montgomery, and real estate professional Gladys Kern, each are unique in many ways, but similar, like the Black Dahlia, in the lack of any link to the mob or gambling or the vice squad. The spotlight on the driver Dylan false arrest fiasco results in the doctor's previous failures in judgment. On January 21st, the Los Angeles Daily News published an article written by investigative reporter Sarah Boynov. Headline is Driver Background Revealed, and the article does substantial damage to the image of the doctor and to the city that employed him. And multiple scandals are presented. Driver has padded his resume. Driver did not have the expected certifications from the state board and had been admonished by the courts. The reporter discovered that Driver was not his real name. He was born Joseph L. Israel. Many changed their names for a variety of good reasons, but Driver embraced a false history of French heritage, embellishing his image by claiming to be a descendant of Bayou pirate Jean Lafitte. The unflattering expose of Driver causes city councilman Ernest Debs to initiate a public inquiry into the qualifications of the psychiatrist. City officials had to be concerned with the Leslie Dillon $100,000 lawsuit that was filed on February 23, 1949.
The Los Angeles County Grand Jury investigation into the Dillon fiasco utilizes the district attorney team to investigate any Leslie Dillon connection to the Black Dahlia murder. Los Angeles Police Department gangster squad detectives followed up on a lead that Leslie Dillon had stayed at the Astor Motel in April of 1947 before leaving Los Angeles for Oklahoma City that summer. There was a dramatic amount of blood found in one of the motel rooms on the morning of Elizabeth Short's severed body was found on Norton Avenue. Could Leslie Dillon have been at the Astor that week in January? The police were never informed of the blood in the motel room, even though the amount of blood suggests a crime of extraordinary violence. Bert Mormon, who is Clara Hoffman's brother, lived at the Astor Hotel with his wife in January of 1947, and he spoke to a LAPD detective saying, I worked in a mortuary. We used to drain the bodies of blood and drain off half of it and then put in the other fluid. I thought the blood on the mattress would be what a human body would probably contain. It was that much. The smell there at that time was enough to dry you out, even though it had already been cleaned up. Interesting that the blood is on the bed, not drained into the bathtub. So the Black Dahlia Avenger, if he murdered someone in this motel room, takes tremendous care in washing and scrubbing the victim's body with a brush. Why would he leave the motel room looking like a slaughterhouse? Lisa Durant, a maid, said when she looked in, there was human feces on the floor and wall. And she said that there were male shoe prints in the feces. Dr. Frederick Newbar, the chief county autopsy surgeon, said that Elizabeth Short's stomach was full and there was fecal matter in her lower intestine at the time of her death, so there was no indication that there was a loss of fecal matter. But that brings up another topic. Beth is fed. Well, why is that interesting? If Beth is held captive for seven days to be tortured, why feed her before killing her? Her stomach is full with a bit of alcohol. It sounds like an evening that starts like a date. The full belly is not evidence, but it is an indicator worthy of our acknowledgement. The owner of the Astor Motel and ex-con by the name of Henry Hoffman shooed away the maid on that morning and cleaned the room himself. The amount of blood makes this a crime scene, and so Hoffman's actions make him at the very least an accessory to a violent crime. One has to factor Hoffman's untruthfulness with this in mind, that he committed a crime by not reporting this bloody crime scene in January of 1947. So we have to look at his answers in the 1949 inquiry because they reflect that reality. Significantly, it would be Hoffman's best interest if the police focused on his motel as the Elizabeth Short crime scene rather than an unreported crime scene, which was not the crime scene. Elizabeth Short was killed elsewhere. From the very start, the LAPD understood that they're looking for an environment that would allow Elizabeth Short to be captured, restrained, slowly tortured, then mutilated and drained of blood. And so when the police sent 40 patrolmen to go door to door in Lyman Park in early 1947, 
Detective Freestone explained the purpose of the operation is to locate the death house where homicide believed Elizabeth Short was held captive and tortured and slain. Privacy is needed to commit this murder. The killer takes pleasure in the torture and wouldn't want to be interrupted or hurried. Motels are the least private of accommodations. Everyone's on the first floor. Management and guests are ever close, watching, listening, and the walls are thin at the Astor. One writer oddly refers to the motel rooms at the Astor as cabins. It's a misleading image because it implies privacy. If one imagines individual cabins dotting a pastoral scene, you'd be very disappointed at the asphalt cement and windows with bars on them at the corner of Figueroa and 29th. The small rooms of the Astor Motel share common walls, and the motel was built on the cheap in 1946 and flipped in 1947. As owners, Hoffman and his wife Clara lived at the motel, it's highly unlikely that a torture mutilation crime could have occurred at the Astor without Hoffman's knowledge. So either he participated or was bribed or was threatened. Clara Hoffman burned the motel registration cards after the sale to the new owner, Joseph Marks. So there's no proof Dylan was in Los Angeles on the date in question and witnesses place him in San Francisco. But clearly the gangster squad desired to collar Dylan and clear their reputation, but there was no case that could be made against Dylan. The Astor motel witnesses are unreliable and any testimony of an ex-con who failed to report a murder crime scene would be exposed and ridiculed at trial. Dylan's innocence was a foregone conclusion. He wasn't in Los Angeles and his prints didn't match the fingerprint on the letter. The undisciplined gangster squad scandal would lead to the forced retirement of the LAPD chief of police, Earl, as well as formal charges would be filed against four of his top officers. All had committed perjury in their grand jury testimony. A new chief of police is appointed on June 30th, 1949. It's an outsider. He is a retired Marine Major General, William Wharton. And the rogue gangster squad is disbanded, replaced by a newly formed intelligence section operating directly under the chief of police. Under attack, Deriver grasps at straws and doubles down. In Black Dahlia, Red Rose, Eatwell presents Deriver's thoughts indirectly by quoting a young playwright who interviewed him. And so Eatwell quotes Donald Freed, quoting Deriver. The doctor told us that Leslie Dillon, with his connections to the prostitution network, was a pimp and errand boy for Mark Hansen. Hansen was getting tired of the short girl. He was jealous of her many boyfriends, had enough of her pestering him for money. So one day Hansen said words to the effect of, get rid of her. Hansen, not knowing or caring that his functionary was a dangerous and murderous psychopath, was stunned when she turned up as she did all caught up. Dylan was simply a runner, a messenger, a small-time hood, but he knew where the bodies were buried and who at the LAPD was on the cuff for betting, bookmaking, prostitution, etc. End quote. This may be the most irresponsible paragraph in any true crime book I have read. If Dylan was a gopher and pimp for Hansen and 
and TG. They would be witnesses at the Florentine Gardens and elsewhere. And yet Eatwell has no proof that Dylan knows Hansen, nor could the DA discover any proof that Dylan knew Short, no proof that Dylan is a murderous psychopath. Dylan has no history of violent crime. Eatwell understands that Dylan is more of a grifter than a gangster when she lists his career choices, bellhop, bootlegger, pimp, gambler, taxi driver, dance instructor. Quote, he never stayed in one place for long, nor did any one thing for long. Yet this bellhop, who has spent a few months in the city of Los Angeles, knows the names of every cop on the take. Why would Dylan kill Elizabeth Short at the Astor Motel when he's known there? Why would he leave the room in such a state with the blood and the feces when he's known at that motel? Why would the police fear Dylan, a transient bellhop and taxi driver? So much they let him go, but the LAPD doesn't fear Brenda Allen, who testified with documentation of her bribes to the vice squad. Why would Leslie Dillon kill Beth Short on behalf of Mark Hansen and then mail the press and the police a package with Mark Hansen's address book embossed in gold on the cover? If Hansen was a powerful mob figure, he would have had Dillon rubbed out for being so careless. But Hansen has no history of violent crime and no history of crime whatsoever. There's no proof that Hansen owned the Astor Motel or stayed there. Eatwell's hypothesis that Hansen is a powerful mob-connected figure that pulled the strings of the LAPD is offered with zero evidence. She assigns the following quote to no one, but says, word on the street was that Mark Hansen, like Jimmy Utley, was in the abortion racket. Mark Hansen is an owner of theaters, car lots. He's an investor in a nightclub. Jimmy Utley is a bookie and gambling club operator known to the newspapers, and he was subpoenaed and testified at the 1950 Senate hearings on organized crime. He was publicly associated with Mickey Cohen and Jack Dragna, Johnny Rosselli and Johnny Stampanato. Utley was arrested for burglary. Hansen has no arrest record. He's not like Jimmy Utley, nor is Hansen quite as rich or influential as portrayed. To refer to Mark Hansen as a mover or shaker in Hollywood in 1949 is an exaggeration. He didn't own the Florentine Guards and never did. Frank Bruni was the owner. Hansen was an investor and a physical presence at the club. In any case, the Florentine Gardens went broke in 1948, filing for bankruptcy with mounting debts over $100,000, and it closed that October. Hansen's Markal Theater was burned in July of 1948. A fire had damaged the roof, the orchestra pit, and the stage, causing nearly $100,000 in damages. Now that would be very small potatoes to a gangster like Mickey Cohen. It's a crippling blow to Hansen. On July 15, 1949, a stripper from Oakland by the name of Lola Titus shot Mark Hansen in the back as he was shaving. Titus' motives are unclear. She had mental health issues. The LAPD searches the Carlos Avenue bungalow for traces of blood, but finds nothing when Hansen is in the hospital. Hansen allows the police to bug his house, willing to be a stool pigeon. It was Hansen's understanding the police were investigating a jewelry store and insurance scam. 
In fact, the LAPD were hoping to hear Hansen incriminate himself. They heard nothing of value and decided that Hansen is not a credible suspect. The next person we're going to discuss is George Hodel, probably the most accurate term to describe the LAPD's relationship to George would be a person of interest. Hodel fits the mold for the Black Dahlia venture better than Dylan or Hansen or Manley. Dr. Hodel, of course, has medical knife skills. He has privacy of an isolated house. He's a womanizer and a camera enthusiast. I think there's good evidence that uh, a camera is a significant hobby because Elizabeth Short's body was posed. And remember that Detective St. John showed David Lynch the flash photograph taken at the Norton Avenue site. So just as the LAPD tried to entrap Hansen by recording his home and guests, the police bugged George Hodel at home in February and March of 1950. George Hodel was on police radar because he was a doctor who had been accused of a sex crime, but he was eliminated as a suspect by District Attorney Frank Jemson. Former LAPD officer Steve Hodel has investigated his father and believes that he's a serial killer. George Hodel is responsible for many of the other lone women murders in Los Angeles as well as the Zodiac killings in Northern California. Steve Hodel theorizes his father is enamored with Man Ray and the display of the body mimics Man Ray's art. Oddly, there are no surrealistic elements in the stomping of Jeannie French uh, in a muddy field, nor any of the other lone women murder victims show uh, the grotesque mutilation of lust-killing violence that we associate with the Black Dahlia. The torture before death or the time with the body after death isn't seen in any of the unsolved murders that Hodel suggests, Georgette Bowerdorf or Orr Murray, for example. Why torture and why Norton Avenue and why display the body in public? There isn't anything about a Man Ray photograph that successfully answers those questions. Steve Hodel began his journey into the Black Dahlia mystery when he discovered pictures in his father's belongings that he believed bore resemblance to Elizabeth Short. These pictures are of other women, not Elizabeth. And indeed, there are no photographs of Elizabeth and George together. They are in the same social or cultural circles. Beth is meeting soldiers on street corners and letting them buy her dinner at the pig stand. Beth is hanging out at, at Carpenter's Drive-In on Vermont or visiting watering holes near the Greyhound bus station like the Corral Bar and the Gay Way Bar. There's no proof that they dated, no proof that they have any shared path. But that alone isn't enough to declare Hodel innocent. After all, a stranger killed Beth Short, then George Hodel could have been that stranger. He has the skills and the privacy. Beth often allowed strangers to get close, and Manly and Vetcher, for example, picked her up on the street. George Hodel... A confident, sophisticated man driving a nice car could have met Beth on a sidewalk outside the Taboo Club. But Hodel is not a match for the FBI latent fingerprint found on the envelope. He's not a match for any of the Bauerdorf crime scene fingerprints. And if anyone accepts Steve's theory that George Hodel molested his 15-year-old daughter Tamara and had sex parties 
uh, at the Snowden house, these acts of abnormal sexual behavior don't intersect with the actions of a lust serial killer. So the torture murder of Elizabeth Short needs to be understood as a planned criminal attack unlike any other. It's wise to remember that there are few who could conceive of such a crime and fewer who would commit such a crime. The bisection and the draining of the blood from the body and the public display of the victim make this a very unique crime in history. This is the end of part one, and I look forward to finishing the second part very shortly. Thank you.